All right, I am Haggai Davis III, along with Haggai Davis II, and we'd like to welcome you to Tech Gumbo. Our show is a conversation about the past, present, and future of all things technology that we like to keep topical, interesting, and digestible. We want to thank our sponsor, Cardinal Capital, for making this possible. Cardinal Capital connects businesses to capital. It doesn't matter what business that you are in, Cardinal Capital has the resources all across the United States that are willing to help fund organizations of all sizes, life cycles, categories, and locations. Cardinal Capital works with you to craft the best commercial finance package for you to achieve your business goals. Whether you're looking to refinance current debt because of the new government programs and favorable interest rates, or finance new equipment, or maybe you're trying to acquire another business entirely, Cardinal Capital has the resources to make it happen. When lenders cannot do a loan, they seek out Cardinal Capital to help. The Cardinal Capital guys are easy to work with and fun to be around. Contact them today at 225-308-3700 or send them an email at info at cardinalcap.net and they'll be happy to help you with your commercial finance needs. So, Mr. Davis, we have a question of the week this week and the question is, what is quishing? Yeah, they definitely could have named this phenomenon better. I don't love the word quishing, but I also don't love what it describes, and that is QR phishing. Those little QR codes that you see everywhere, especially at restaurants, they're more dangerous than you think. So the QR code, QR standing for quick response, all the little pixels in in that little box has tons and tons of information inside of each one of those codes. Now, we have spent years and years and years telling people, don't just click on everything. Don't just click on every link. That's what phishing has become. That's how so many cyber problems have started because people are clicking on links, opening documents. But, oh, hey, here's these cute QR codes. They're just informational, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fantastic parallel there, that you have all these emails that come, you know, forwards from grandma or whatever. Well, this looks a little different. You know, it's it's the restaurant who's placing the menu in front of me, so it must be fine, right? Well, I guarantee you that restaurant's not watching that code 24-7, and so all it takes is one person to just sit there and place their QR code sticker right over the top of the previous one, and their QR code can still direct you to the restaurant's website. But just in the middle, you're going to stop off and it's going to drop some malware on your phone. It's going to drop some spyware, some ransomware, some whatever it wants. You're not going to know because you say, oh, you know, it took an extra couple seconds to get the restaurant's website, but I'm not on their Wi-Fi. So, you know, maybe it's just slow cell reception. Nope, they've got you. Every restaurant you go to, in, especially when we were down in Australia and New Zealand and up in New York City, they all had QR codes plastered right there in the middle of the table. And a lot more and more restaurants around the country are going to this because instead of printing whole new menus, I can just upload a change daily or hourly to my menu on my website if I wanted to. And that QR code is going to show the most recent like you said, that malware that can be packed into the back end of that QR code, at least with a link you can see when you hover over the top of it, I'm going to take you to a badwebsite.com to be extreme. QR codes don't show you that. It just says, here's the QR code. We're going to take you somewhere. It doesn't say, what, here's all the other bad stuff in the middle. 
well, you know, on my phone, it'll have the little Chrome icon and it'll give you maybe like 10 total characters. And so, but it, it's all gibberish because it's a shortened link. And so it's, it's one of those link shorteners. And so I, I couldn't tell you what it says or where it's going to. I just click, click what it is. And here we are doing the thing, which is we've explicitly said not to do. Don't click on links that you don't know, that you don't trust. That should still hold true, no matter where that came to you from. But the problem is, is that because so many places are picking up QR codes, I see it a lot in the subways that you see ads. You know, there was a Super Bowl ad. There's all kinds of other ads. I've seen it in a lot of different places that companies are saying, oh, well, I can just have this one static ad that I pay 10 bucks to print the poster, but here, go link to my website, which is now a multimedia experience that I can change and update. It's a really powerful tool when used properly, but there's just so many ways for this to go badly. The bottom line, quishing is a problem. It is probably something that's going to change our dependency upon these QR codes that, and QR codes have only been around for a few years. And the bad guys are just really waking up to the idea of how quickly they can take control of things by sticking their little info or their, their payload in the back of that QR code. So the next time you see that QR code, think twice before you click on it. I absolutely agree. So our big story this week is we are coming back to the Google trial. We talked a few weeks ago about the antitrust case, and it's been a little while. We thought we'd come back and update you on what's been going on. So this week, Sundar Pakai, the CEO of Google, appeared in court to testify. And he basically said, oh, everything that everybody else said, uh-uh, that ain't true. He said that, yes, that Google paid the $26 billion to be the default search engine on Apple products. That was not that big of a deal, that there are exclusive licensing agreements all the time. This is they were just creating the best, most seamless experience that was easy for their users because their users want to use Google. Let's put it in front of them that this was not a big deal and that it was all overblown. Yeah, that $26 billion that Google paid to Apple to be the exclusive search provider on iPhones in the year 2021, that turned out to be 18% of Google's total search revenue for the year. So you're paying almost 20% of your revenue to Apple just to be the exclusive so that you can maintain your dominance. Because if you let anybody else have a part of that, then your 90% starts dropping down considerably. Because that's, that, again, that's not even 18% of their total profit. That's just revenue. So that really shows you how valuable they think this is, that they have the money to throw around on this. Now, Mr. Pachai argued that whenever Chrome was released, it helped challenge the browser environment that Microsoft had stagnated with Internet Explorer. And that's what they did changed the market and made it better. And that ultimately is his arguments consistent across the whole lawsuit is that what Google has done is simply be the best. 
that they have hired the best and brightest engineers from around the world for 20 years and that they have paid them like the best and brightest engineers for around the world for 20 years. And whenever you just have that much talent working for that long, you're going to build the best stuff. And this is simply the natural results of having the best and brightest. It makes sense as an argument. And it comes down to the U.S. government is going to have to argue that Google did not become the biggest because it was the best. Google became the best because it was the biggest. The U.S. government is going to have to argue that Google's size alone hit a tipping point and allowed them to shove other people out of the market and not simply win because they were better. In Europe alone, just since 2020, where people do have a real choice as to which browser you're going to use, which search engine you're going to use, people still choose Google nine to one. Almost 91% of the of the searches in Europe is made on Google. In the U.S., it's closer to 88%. Microsoft's Bing is all of 3.4% in the EU, but it's about 6.5% in the U.S. So more people are liking Bing in the U.S. than, than over there in Europe. And that, as a statistic, feels pretty damning for the U.S. government that in Europe, where they have the choice, that they are given a choice screen whenever you log into your browser, people are switching to Chrome and away from Bing. Google's just going to sit there and they're going to point at that number and say, look, here, we're, we're at the point in time wherever people want our product, even when they're never given the choice. The U.S. government's going to have to argue that Yes, you are the best product now, but it is because you have become so big that you are able to crush everyone. The argument that I heard that was made a lot of sense to me was that let's say a restaurant opens up and that they their time is listed incorrectly on Google and their time is listed incorrectly on Bing. Well, because so many people see that time on Google, Someone's going to go and say, hey, Google has your time wrong. So the restaurant's going to go to the Google page and change that time. Whereas it's unlikely that someone's going to go to Bing and see that the Bing time is wrong. And so the restaurant might not update that Bing time. And so then after you repeat this for a number of cycles, people just learn to trust Google more and learn to trust Bing less. And so that's not necessarily Google being a better product. That's Google being a bigger product. And so that's how the U.S. government is going to have to make its case and that we've already passed that tipping point. But boy, this is a tough one. You know, we've talked about over and over and over. I use both Google Chrome and Microsoft Edge. I use both of them a lot. I use the Google search engine on Microsoft Edge. Except now that I've started using ChatGPT, which is certainly using the Microsoft product in the Bing search engine, I, even when I'm on edge, I'm going to go to Google. And if I'm just looking for a, a total Google search where that's going to give me the million links to everything, I'm going that way from the Microsoft browser. ChatGPT, I'm getting the specific answer. And that's a whole different thing. 
I'm I'm somebody who likes Microsoft a lot, but I still prefer the Google search if I'm doing a generic search. Same. I I have started going to Edge a little bit more to use the the Bing chat, which uses the GPT-4 to use the Dolly 3 image creator. And so Bing has those generative AIs, which I will go to use that. But as you said, if I'm just doing a, a true internet search, I'm still using Google. In a similar kind of story, Amazon used what was called Project Nessie. It was a secret algorithm to raise prices. So this is part of the antitrust lawsuit that the FTC is taking against Amazon. The FTC has been busy recently, for those of you who haven't keeping up. And so their argument here is that what Project Nessie would do is they would test how much Amazon could raise their prices so that competitors would have to follow. And so Amazon would make higher profit margins on the products they would sell. For those people who are wondering, why is it that when Amazon would raise their prices, other people would have to follow them? This comes back to Amazon had the function to wherever if a seller were to list an object cheaper on another website, Amazon would delist that product, which means that people would have to sit there and make sure that whatever Amazon said the price was, that price was the same everywhere. So if Amazon raised the price and it wasn't even the seller, it was Amazon, the seller had to go to those other places and raise that price there as well. When they were using Nessie, and Amazon has come out and said, it was just something we used for a short period of time. It was, it's, we stopped using it a long time ago. This was, it was just a project and we, we scrapped it several years ago and we've moved on to other things. But when they were using it, they had quite a powerful tool that could help keep them in the best light so that they had the best prices and it made people want to use Amazon instead of going directly to individual sellers. Yeah, because if Amazon could sit there and use this Project Nessie, if they said, oh, well, we're only making 2% profit on this current one, we'd be happy at 3 We'd be really excited at 4%. And so Amazon could just nudge that price up just a little bit. And because, you know, maybe it's only a dollar, maybe it's only a dollar fifty. That's not a large amount. But when given Amazon's total volume, that number really adds up. And in their defense, Amazon is saying, oh, well, we just scour the Internet trying to find the best prices. You know, we're just doing the legwork for the consumers. And then if you were to come after us, that would be anti-consumer behavior. But what Amazon does not acknowledge is that they are not a neutral third party here. They are not just some scout who is walking to Walmart, walking to Target, and walking to Albertsons, checking to see who has the cheapest apples. They are Walmart. They are setting the price. And if, if Target or Albertsons have cheaper apples, then you no longer get apples from those places. Amazon is has direct control over the market. They're not simply experiencing the market. And that is a huge lever point that is very different. And so in much the same way for this antitrust case, Amazon is going to argue that they have become bigger because they are better. But the U.S. government is going to argue they have become better because they are bigger. It is just such a, a fascinating 
way that the government is trying to frame this. Because if I'm a consumer and I use Amazon, it's so easy for hop on the web, go to Amazon. I'm looking for this. Bap, bap, bap. Here's 25 different options to buy whatever I want. I can click on the one I want. And two days later, it's here at the house. It's hard for me to say, well, I don't want you to break that. I like that ability. Now, if I'm that retailer of that small business that's struggling because my margins are, are not very good and then Amazon's crushing my margins because it would be much better if they could if, if I would just go to their website and buy directly from them, that's work. That means I've got to go look for them as opposed to going to the aggregator, going to the the big company, Amazon or the big company, Google, to find the big tool that they've made to make my life easier as a consumer. Well, why is that a bad thing for me is part of these big companies' arguments. That is a very alluring pitch. But the reason why we break up trusts, the reasons why we break up monopolies is that it is tough to envision that world in which we experience something better whenever we only live in this one. There's a famous quote from Kara Swisher, who's a tech journalist, and her argument is that you are a cheap date, that Google Maps is a wonderful service. It's fantastic, all the things that it does, but the amount of data that you give to Google to use that is worth far more than a very nice mapping service. And the amount of money that you give to Amazon is worth far more than this convenience. And that if Amazon had to compete with other companies, then there might be even more innovations, that there might be even better things. We, having competition, having options, having companies have to innovate against each other is the goal here. That is the point. And if one company becomes so large that anybody who tries to compete with them, they can simply squash. Well, we've lost that incentive. I think this is a fascinating thing to track. And look, the fact that Amazon has forced third-party sellers to raise their prices anywhere from 20 to as much as 45% over the past decade because Amazon wants a bigger profit. They're wanting you as the retailer to have a bigger profit. So raise your prices, raise raise what you're charging to your clients. Amazon's pitches we're help we're we're bringing more money to the businesses because they're able to sell their products for more money as opposed to the consumer who could have just gotten in the car drove across town and cut out the middleman amazon and saved a few bucks but again that would require work that was effort that's doing something more than just jumping on the web and click 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 sold but even then Amazon's cut of third-party sales has rose dramatically in the past decade. In 2014, Amazon only took 19% of third-party sales. It now takes 45%. So Amazon has doubled its cut in the past decade, more than doubled its cut in the past decade. And another thing is that transportation used to be a third-party service. You would have a company and then they would make a product and they would contact a shipper and the shipper would move it. Amazon being both a producer and the shipper simultaneously brings them both under one umbrella. And that kind of breaks this chain. 
definitely is a real fascinating thing to watch play out. And as this continues to go along, we will get back to you and keep you informed. And we want to thank General Informatics for sponsoring our show. General Informatics is an information technology firm with a mission. And that mission is to make our clients even more successful through the best use of technology. Based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, General Informatics is a premier IT managed services provider delivering exceptional managed IT solutions to a diverse base of customers from Texas to the Carolinas. From the beginning, we have maintained our commitment to meeting the growing needs of our clients through the continuous use of innovation. With over 20 years of experience and a team of 120 plus employees, including technicians, engineers, programmers, and designers, GI has evolved to become the leading IT partner of businesses, schools, and government agencies. Our managed services teams can run your digital infrastructure or support your team on an on-demand basis, letting you focus on your business's strength. This has become a proven formula, so proven that 98% of our clients continue to do business with us year after year. Whether you need new IT services, new technology, or you just have a question, visit us on the web at geninf.com. And if you enjoyed our show today, we're here on Talk 107.3 FM every Saturday at 4, and the show will rerun Sunday at 4. If you missed any part of our show or you would like to hear any of the previous episodes, check out our podcast, which is available on most every platform, including Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podcast Attic, Overcast, Player FM, and more. And when you're there, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified every time a new episode is posted. If you like our show, if you have some suggestions or want to submit a question, let us know by visiting our website, techgumbo.net. Thank you for listening to Tech Gumbo.